Good evening. Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 and 7. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 and 7. And once you're there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It reads, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We're continuing tonight in our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and finally, we've come to chapter 2. If you were here last week, you'll remember that chapter 2 begins with some pretty somber words. And you were dead, says Paul, in your trespasses and sins. And this after chapter 1, where Paul recorded the most beautiful description of the riches of God which we have in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been predestined to adoption as God's sons and daughters. You have redemption through Christ's blood You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and then you were dead. Now, Brad noted last week that Paul speaks of this deadness in the past tense, which ought to give us hope, because it doesn't describe our current state as Christians. But Paul, not wanting his hearers to become arrogant, reminds them of their former position before God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath. Isn't that true of us, who have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus? Were we not also dead, pursuing our own gratification along with the rest of the world, reveling in our rebellion against the God of the universe? These words of Paul should strike a familiar chord in our minds and bring to remembrance the days before Jesus Not only that, but they should conjure in our imaginations what our end would have been if God had not plucked us from our waywardness. Wrath, eternity in hell, existing under the torment of God's righteous justice for endless days, months, years, forever and ever on to eternity. That's where the world is headed. That's where you and I were headed. And that's bad news. But God. Now friends, this right here is one of the biggest buts in all of Scripture. Figured I'd own the joke. Brad is shaking his head at me. (laughs) This is one of the, I'll put it another way, greatest transitions in all of Scripture. (laughs) We were headed for punishment. 
running our hell-bound race at war with our Creator, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Here's the great contrast between sinful man and merciful God. In our natural state, we are helpless to do anything for ourselves that would make us acceptable in God's sight. We're helpless against the power of sin. But don't get the idea that we're somehow innocent victims. That's not the picture that Paul paints. No, our helplessness goes deeper because we're willing participants in it. We're like pigs in slop. We love our sin. And yet, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always contend with us and he will not keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins and he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Praise the Lord. Amen. We can go home after that. But I got more. In the midst of our helplessness, God showed us his rich mercy. He had compassion on us. He looked on us with pity and acted on our behalf. The storehouses of his grace were opened and given to us freely. And this has been true of God since the beginning. God who did not kill our first parents the moment they turned their back on him. God who rescued the patriarchs. God who rescued Israel from Egypt. In the book of Exodus, Israel was groaning under its slavery to Egypt, and Moses records that the sons of Israel sighed because of their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help rose because of their, er, excuse me, and their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew them. Just as Israel was powerless under Egypt, so were we powerless under the rule of our sin. But God saw, and God heard, and God knew. And God reached down in mercy. And just as he delivered Israel from their physical bondage and captivity, so he has delivered us from our spiritual bondage and captivity. But why? Why? Why would this awesome and holy God concern himself with the plight of his enemies? We who are mere rebellious ants. The kings of old sought out their enemies with vengeance. History tells of rebellions put down with fury to establish the king's rule. And surely the king of the universe has the right to give us justice, and we would be without defense before him. So why has he decided to show us mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us, Paul says. Calvin writes about this verse, All was owing to undeserved goodness. For Paul declares that God was moved by this single consideration. Herein, says the Apostle John, is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And that quotation from 1 John 4 ends by telling us, what God's love for us looks like. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and what? Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God the Father has shown to us, was shown to us in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. God was motivated by pure love for us when there was nothing lovely in us. And he showed us that love by sending Christ to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And notice something, that God's love doesn't look like the world's love. The world loves a God who will just wrap you up in a big hug and say, oh, don't worry about all that sin stuff. You're pretty cool in my book. After all, God is love. But the same John who wrote that God is love defined that love for us. God sent his son to be our propitiation. And a propitiation is a sacrifice to appease the righteous wrath of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. By taking our sins on himself. And God punished him for those sins. And he gave us his own righteousness. So that we could stand before God and be accepted by him. That's what love looks like. And this love was shown to us. Beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's the most incredible part of God's love. He gave it to us in the midst of our sinful rebellion against him. Paul says in the book of Romans that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. That's what God's love looks like. Not this cushy, worldly infatuation that costs nothing, means nothing, and does nothing about our sin. The love of God is better than anything that this world can conjure up because it deals with our sin problem. It reconciles us to our Creator. And it's available to all who would turn from their sins and trust in the propitiatory, sin-atoning death of Jesus Christ. So would you turn to trust in him today? Would you leave behind your sin, leave behind your rebellion, and drink from the riches of God's mercy and love? He accepts all who come to him in faith. So don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Even though you may be dead right now in your trespasses and sins, there's good news, because that's the kind of person that God loves to save. God is in the business of making dead people alive. In fact, Paul says that very thing again in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ. Excuse me, in Christ. So not only does God make dead sinners alive again, but he also raises them up and seats them in the heavenly places with Christ. We can't even comprehend that. Quick comment on grace. Paul briefly interjects that this is all of God's grace. It's like he can't contain himself. And I can't go any deeper into this, unfortunately, because he'll say the same thing again in verse 8, and I don't want to steal Chris's thunder. Notice that all of these things describe what happened to Jesus. He was dead, but God made him alive again. God raised Jesus up in the resurrection and again in the ascension. 
Jesus is now currently seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, what God has done to Christ, he's done to you as well. This is what's known as the believer's participation in Christ. In a spiritual way, we participate or have a part in what Christ has. But how can this be? We're still here on earth. We haven't yet been resurrected, obviously. So I can see the rationale behind Paul saying that we're made alive with Christ, but what about these other things? These verses are also describing our union with Christ. In Romans 6, Paul says that we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, somehow we have participated in Christ's death and resurrection in a spiritual way. The benefits of those things get applied to us. So as Christ has died, so too we have died. As Christ has been raised to newness of life, so have we. Paul will even go so far as to say that his own life has been overshadowed by Christ's. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we see that as Christ's body, we're filled with the life of Christ who is our head. And Jesus himself spoke of this same union in John 15. He says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nothing. So going back to Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, we see the benefits that now belong to us because of our union with Christ. We have new life. We've been raised from our spiritual death, and we are now seated spiritually with Christ in the, in the heavenly places. And marriage is a great analogy for this. In marriage, the man and the woman become one. Two bodies become one body. Two bank accounts become one bank account. Two lives become one life. And it's the same thing with the Christian and Christ. Is it any wonder then that the relationship between Christ and the church is described as a marital union? We partake in the heavenly life of our heavenly bridegroom. I want to focus in briefly on, on Paul's statement in verse 6 that believers are said to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What exactly does that mean? And if you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, Paul gives us a clue. He's praying that the church would know the power of God toward us in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Excuse me. And he says that God has seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's that phrase again. And then he says that due to his position, Christ has power far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Not only that, but God has also put all things, all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's you and me. So if we connect what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, with Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, 
we can see that we as believers partake of Christ's power over the spiritual powers in the world. In Christ, we have power over sin and death. In Christ, we can feel secure against the evils of the world. Our heavenly status grants us the powers of heavenly life. What that means is that we can approach the battle against our sin with confidence because Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We can look to our death without fear because Christ promises resurrection in him. We can face a world that despises us knowing that Christ has overcome the world already and we have overcome through him. This isn't our power. That's not what Paul is saying. In ourselves, we're weak and we're prone to wander. But we live in the strength of another. We live in the power of another. We subsist on the nutrients of the vine. A branch that thinks that it can survive without the vine is kidding itself. And so are we if we think we can live without Christ. And the final verse in this section, verse 7, reads like this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this verse begins with a so that, indicating that Paul is moving to a purpose statement. Why has God been rich in mercy towards us? Why has God poured out his great love on us? Why has he given us new life, raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that, says Paul, God might show off his grace and kindness in all the ages to come? Not just the present age, but all subsequent ages. Not just this life, but the next life as well. Again, Calvin writes, the true and final cause, the glory of God, is mentioned that the Ephesians, by making it the subject of earnest study, might be more fully assured of their salvation. It was the design of God to hollow in all ages the remembrance of so great a goodness. In the ancient world, whenever a battle was won, the victors would take the spoils and dedicate them to their own gods. And they would take these trophies of war and they would place them in their temples and build statues and sing songs to commemorate their triumph. And so anyone who walked into those temples afterwards would essentially be looking at a museum of artifacts taken from past wars and conflicts with the people giving honor to the gods who they perceived had given them the victory. There's even an Old Testament example of this. When David was on the run from Saul, he came to a place called Nob, which is a funny name where the tabernacle was. And inside the tabernacle was kept the sword of Goliath. Well, this is intriguing. Why would the priests of God allow a Philistine weapon into the tabernacle, much less allow it to be kept in there? And Scripture doesn't tell us, but more than likely, David dedicated the sword to the Lord as a way of glorifying him for the victory over Israel's enemies. The sword served as a memorial of God's deliverance. And actually think about how humiliating it would be to have your champion's sword in the temple of your enemy's God. Probably pretty humiliating for the Philistines. But that's what Paul is describing, this memorial of God's deliverance. He says, 
so that in the ages to come, God might show. God wants all of creation to see what he's done in the lives of his saints. Why? Because it brings him glory. The salvation of sinners makes God look good. Christians, you are monuments that serve as a message to the whole world that Christ has won the victory over sin and death. And the very next phrase in verse 7 confirms this. What is God showing to the world? The surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy, Paul will write, it, it is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. What an incredible statement. So God has saved us for his glory, for our benefit, and for the benefit of others, for all who will come to believe in the future. Paul is saying that God saved him so that others might observe his salvation and also believe. And when they see how patient God was with Paul, they'll realize that God has also been patient with them and believe for salvation. It's an incredible thing, isn't it, that God has not kept himself hidden, but he's revealed these attributes of himself to us. He's shown us his mercy. He's shown us his grace, his kindness, his patience, his love. Why? Because he's the greatest good. God is our greatest good. He's the only one who's perfectly good. He wants us to be satisfied in him. Not the world. Where else in the world will you go to find perfect love and grace? I challenge you to find one. One place. Where else will you find such infinite kindness? What man-made God will show you patience? What fleshly indulgence can you escape to that will satisfy you with goodness? If you find one, let me know. Luke tells a story in his gospel about Jesus healing ten lepers. And he says that out of the ten, only one of them turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? Yet where are the nine? Was there no one found who turned back to give glory to God? First of all, how ungrateful are these nine men who have just been miraculously healed from leprosy? But second, how many, how many Christians treat the forgiveness of sins like these nine lepers treated this miraculous healing of their bodies? Should we not be jumping for joy with the one who came back glorifying God? Our sins have been forgiven. That's even better than being healed from a physical disease. Our God is rich in mercy and full of great love. Why do we not act like it? Is your life a spectacle of God's grace and kindness? 
Do you exude thankfulness for his mercy? Is your attitude one of peace because you've experienced God's patience? Can the people around you interact with you and come away profoundly affected because they've seen a monument to God's goodness in the world? Church, let us join with the one leper who glorified God for his new life and show the world the joy of our salvation. These four verses in Ephesians 2 have given us a stark contrast between our previous life and our new life. Our old master with our new master. Our old goals with our new goals. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. We were following our own desires and the prince of the power of the air, but because of God's great love for us, those things don't control us anymore. We were headed for wrath, righteous destruction, and we were okay with that, choosing to pursue our own aims, but God has saved us for his glory. Paul's aim in writing this to the Ephesian church is to get them to see their new status clearly by placing before them their old and new states He's inviting them into a deeper reflection upon the work of God for them. And these words are for us too. They're for us to meditate on. Think often about the character of our God. Think of his rich mercy and his compassion towards you even when you were dead and in the midst of grievous sin. Reflect on the greatness of his love which caused him to send his son to take your sin and the punishment for it on himself. There's no greater love than that. That fact alone should determine how we think about God. He's full of grace and love for his people, those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. Think often about Christ and your status in him. You've been given a new life. Raised up, seated with him. All that he has is yours. And through the Holy Spirit, he's given you his power to resist your former way of living. In Christ, you have the victory over sin. Live like it. Approach your sin and its temptations as a conqueror in Christ. Approach your whole life as someone who's alive with Christ. This isn't sinless perfectionism because, of course, the flesh sometimes wins. We all know that. But even so, victory belongs to the Lord and to us because we're in him. And what we now possess spiritually, we will possess physically as well one day in the new heavens and the new earth. And finally, live all of life to the glory of God. You've been given the best gift of all. There's nothing greater than salvation. Reconciliation with our creator. And God wants the world to know it so that more might receive it. Let us be a people who proclaim God's goodness in how we think, speak, and act. The world needs to see that their creator has decided 
to show his patience, his kindness, his mercy, and his love to sinful people like us. And that he can show the same to them if they would but turn from their sin and believe. And for those of you who are here who may listen online, who are dealing with guilt over your sin, or if you're wondering if you're even saved, these words of Paul are for you as well. Yes, your sin makes you guilty. Your sin makes you deserving of divine wrath. But God is rich in mercy. He's full of great love and grace. Come to him in faith. Receive new life in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we were dead. We were following the desires of our flesh, the prince of the power of the air, heading for destruction by nature, children of wrath. And yet you stooped down. You took pity on us in the midst of our rebellion, and you gave us grace. And Lord, we pray for the people in our lives, for the world, those who don't know you, that you would show yourself to them in a glorious way and give them mercy, just as you have given us mercy. Save your people out of this world, O Lord. And may we, as we go from here, go with a determination to be monuments to your grace so that others may see and believe. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for this salvation that you've given us. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.